You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. This is your access to world-class accounting leaders, global influencers and thought leaders. Discover what makes accounting firms great and accounting professionals world-class. Sponsored by Dext. Make the businesses you advise more productive, profitable and powerful with better data and insights. It's the Accounting Influencers Podcast with me, Rob Brown, one of the world's leading shows where we bring experts on that know what's going on in the accounting profession. We are in such crazy times. We are to people in 150 countries and serve the accounting and fintech world to give you the lowdowns on the high priorities. I'm thrilled to have with me today one of the world's leading experts on technology and operational functions of accounting firms from K2 Enterprises. It's Randy Johnson. Good day, sir. A good day, Rob. It's a pleasure to be with you and your listeners. Well, Randy, thank you. We've done recent episodes with you, and we always love having you on the show because you're in touch with so many of the top events, the top thought leaders. We've spoken recently about the top priorities of accounting firms. We'll put the link to that show in the show notes. And we even got your views on chat GPT and AI and what's that that is doing in the profession. So both excellent shows. Today, and we tend to bring you on quite regularly and ask what's on your heart, what's concerning you, what conversations are you having? You've recently been at uh, Engage, and that is a very, very big conference. So I'm going to ask you what came out from that. And then we're going to drill down a little bit on private equity and how that's impacting operations in accounting firms. Uh, but listen, tell us about what a big deal Engage is for our international listeners, Randy. Yeah, happy to do that, Rob. In fact, the AICPA Engage conference has been the largest uh, conference operated in the U.S. for some time. Uh, I first attended back in the 1980 timeframe. So that, that gives you an arc of 40 plus years. Uh, the event this year had... Uh, a few thousand attendees in person, about 3,000 and about 1,000 online. So not as big as the AccountX operation in the UK, but certainly a significant show. The frenzy at AICPA Engage was all around artificial intelligence. And there were multiple significant players in attendance. Uh, the 40 under 40 influencer meeting occurred on Sunday. And the most powerful women in accounting awards were also uh, awarded during the event. But this is kind of the place to go. Most of the significant accounting press of the U.S. are there. And most of the significant providers to the profession are in attendance. So uh, names that would be familiar to your uh, listeners around the world might be like the Inflow uh, product line. Uh, CEO Mark Edmondson and I met again there. That's uh, the third time that I've met him face to face at that Mark's show. Is top a, guy. He's been on this show a couple of times as well. Yeah, he's a, he's a nifty person and has written a really great technology uh, governance paper, which I'm recommending broadly for not only audit tools but to be used as a framework for tax and other technologies. So that's pretty nifty, but. The kind of the best of the best were there. I met many of the new CEOs and noticed new CEOs is actually a little unusual because CEOs in the profession tend to stay for, you know, an extended period of time. But because of the acquisition of so many of these businesses that originally started as 
entrepreneurial operations and grew up, they've sold out and the new management teams are coming into place. But I would suggest that almost all of the top influencers in accounting were in attendance at the conference in the United States. Yes, I'm attending a similar one on a much smaller scale organized by Arena who do the International Accounting Bulletin. That takes place in London in a few weeks and I'm chairing that one. That's more focused on the networks and associations and alliances. Randy, you'll be familiar with many of those. Mark Cozier will be there. Uh, he's a, an AICPA big member. And yes, there'll be some big firms there and some of the big vendors, including Mark Edmondson and Inflow, his team will be there. Yeah, and it turns out like uh, Mark Cozier, I actually spoke with at Engage and uh, his second command and his consultants and so forth, all of them were there. So I actually got to spend a fair bit of time with a, a wide variety of people. And, you know, one of the things I'm cognizant of uh, at all times is when people are sharing things in confidence, I don't want to violate any NDAs, certainly, and would never do that. But I also want to be, you know, straightforward on some of the things that I learned. So my general rule, Rob, is I try to have very uh, in-depth conversations with CTOs and CEOs. Uh, you know, I spent probably greater than 45 minutes in multiple meetings each uh, with CEOs talking strategy of what they were trying to do with their products and what might be able to be done. So some of those uh, were pretty strong insights, as I would see it. When you look at Engage over the 40 years that you've been going, Randy, how has the show itself changed over that time? What has it become? Yeah, it has probably become a little less hardcore technology centric because in the early days we had to teach things like what's the internet and what's email and how does a network work and, you know, what's an operating system and what's productivity software. So, you know, in the early days it was very low level like that. In fact, uh, I should be able to recall which year, but for about four years running, I asked for contributions from major vendors like uh, Hewlett Packard and Compaq, and we set up networks to teach people how the networks actually worked. And then when wireless first became popular, we set up wireless to show people how wireless worked. So normally through the years, Rob, we've picked something that's brand new and demonstrated in the context of the con uh, the event in addition to having sessions about it. So when social media was first starting up, when video casting was starting up and so forth, each of those years. What's evolved recently though is far more of management strategy. Now that was always there, but the uh, change has been happening so fast that it's hard for managers, leading partners, managing partners to get their hands around the technology and understand what to do or how to select things. So there's been a lot more of that focus on it. Um, additionally, various groups have been added in, like the Marketing Alliance for CPA firms have been added in. But we've also done a fair bit with, let's say, business analytics and predictive analytics and some of the evolving technology there. So, you know, as I'm thinking back, it really has been almost the entire arc of progress from mainframe mini computer CPA uh, you know, accountant processing to, you know, this whole uh, realm of SaaS and cloud. You mentioned earlier, ChatGPT and AI would have been high on the agenda at Engage, but you've also been having a lot of conversations about 
the private equity movement and venture capital money and the public and private ownership of accounting firms. Just paint for us a, a landscape of the big picture here, Andy. I'm mixing my metaphors, but you know what I mean. Yes, sir. I, I do understand. And, you know, I'm going to back up in the question just a little bit, because for at least the last three years and possibly a little longer, I've been concerned about independence in the profession. Okay. And uh, a, a significant number of the consultants, the profession in the U.S. are taking money without disclosing it, often referral fees uh, from significant publishers. And so if you're pulling in a consultant, sometimes you don't know that there's a hidden agenda. Well, that was very bothersome to me. And, uh, you know, at a, a, a prior thought leader meeting, we'd seen that occur. And it's like, you do understand you're supposed to disclose you know, those type of relationships. But most important has been the evolution of private ownership and entrepreneurs into selling out their operations, usually to private equity ownership or to, to public. And the impact here is very significant. Now, we've got private equity investment occurring across the CPA firm's in the United States, and there are a number of them that have accepted that, the Eisner Ampers of the world and, and others that I could name. But you can look those up, I think, relatively easily. The same thing has been happening with the technology companies. So many of those have been rolled up, purchased out, and that's I'm happy for the owners that are exiting, but the impact of uh, terminations of people for, for operational efficiency the reduction of support people and the slowing down of development are all concerns. Now, you know, I, I've managed businesses a long time, Rob, and I want everybody to be profitable, but it is clear that the strategy has become, we're going to maximize the operations by cutting the things that have been the competitive differential. Now, the impact I think will be felt for a long time to come. Now, uh, practitioners in the United States, we know it's happening in Canada and other uh, countries as well, are feeling the impact when they call for support or they email for support that the turn is very slow and that the quality of response and oftentimes the people that they're getting, you know, is just not up to snuff. So, uh, you know, this is happening with a lot of the public companies who've had massive layoffs, and we've seen that, but it's also happening in these private equity uh, positions. So, you know, I, I'm going to use a bit of a quote on this one because I think it illustrates it. Um, I've stayed very well connected with a lot of these companies. Traditionally, I know the CEO, the VP of marketing, the VP of development. And so I've got very high level contacts. And, you know, when I have conversations with them, uh, you know, a lot of times I try to make sure that there aren't listening or prying ears. But my favorite repeated quote this year was, uh, we have a performance plan that we don't think is possible to hit in any shape or fashion. So I'm going to do the best I can this year. And we'll see what December brings or January, because I may not be here a year from now. And, you know, when you take very senior people or you take very experienced people and lay them off, in many cases, the new developers, let's say, have no clue what the code looks like. And so what's happening in this past year, we've seen a lot of legacy products that were supposed to be improved by the takeover 
that actually wound up being broken in lots of fronts. And again, I'm not going to throw a lot of stones other than I can tell you a whole lot of products did not work in 2023 that were working okay in 2022. There's so much you're bringing out here, Andy. I'm going to pedal back a little bit to the consultants you mentioned, influencers that have vested interests, be it with publishing or vendors. They're pushing particular products, agendas, platforms. Sometimes they disclose those, sometimes they don't. But the very definition of a consultant is a, a trusted advisor that will speak to the best interests of a business, not to the best interests of themselves. And in that way, they must be objective. They must be impartial to offer best advice. So there's some compromises there, aren't there? There are. And, you know, I have become, and frankly, usually have been for a multiple decades, what people today would call an advisory type of practice, not even really what I would call a consultative pack practice. And, you know, we could talk about the difference in that, but you are absolutely right. The firms are trying to get independent advisors and there are too many that are holding themselves out to be independent advisors that are taking back money. And again, I want everybody to be profitable. That's not the deal. But, you know, uh, if you've got enough back money that we're talking uh, high six figures, almost seven figures of back money, that's that's some real, real change. And, you know, I don't mind people buying new cars, but, you know, it's it's probably a little out of over the top to buy a new Ferrari with your you know, back with your uh, slush fund money or whatever, you know, we call it in, in our country, payola, a lot of times, uh, you know, to give it that dark money feel. Well, the private equity money coming in, it is certainly changing the game. And traditionally, as I understand it, private equity's job is to make money. They want to make money with money. So they purchase, strip out the assets or make something as lean as possible, maybe sell off bits, but they've got a an agenda, not specifically in the terms of accounting firms of serving their clients well, but of making money from their investments. So that would also compromise an accounting firm, wouldn't it? Having that money involved, because that's another stakeholder or agenda to appease. It is. And if you look at it from a practitioner, from a, a firm perspective, uh, you know, I understand that partners have maybe not structured their exits properly, and this is a good way for them to get an exit and for maybe the best of the best people to also get a pretty good program. But you're on the treadmill at that point, and you've got, in most cases, that five-year cycle to uh, perform, and then you get another opportunity to perform for five more years. And I don't think that's in the uh, accounting professional's best interest. I don't think it's in the client's best interest. I don't think it's in the firm's best interest. And if we look at the technology provider side, it's clearly not in the product's best interest. So the products that we would use to support our clients also won't evolve. And, you know, if you just begin thinking about accounting software, tax software, audit software, so many of these have this agenda where they've got to hit numbers it doesn't really give products time to flourish and grow. You know, it takes a while to get good technology products built. And it, it usually is the entrepreneur that gets us to that level. So a very public fight in the U.S. market, for example, right now is with a, a product called SurePrep, which does personal tax return work papers. Good product. Dave Weil, who was the founder of that company, also built the CCH engagement audit product. 
uh, you know, so he's got a long history of doing this e-pace as it was called in those days and became engagement and the sure prep product he built for about 20 years before he sold it to Thompson. Now Thompson Reuters sold their, my pay division in October for about 500 million. And then they used possibly that 500 million to buy sure prep in November. And they closed the deal in January. Well, SurePrep used to work with all of the significant tax products and a now very public fight where, you know, Walters Kluwer CCH has not renewed the API for ProSystem FX. So SurePrep can no longer do that. You know, that, that's a kind of an example of public companies going at it. And again, there's enough public information about that. And by the way, I've talked to Walters Kluwer directly and I've talked to SurePrep directly. I mean, I get this story on both sides. And, uh, you know, understand how that happens. But, you know, I tend to be uh, less of a walled garden type of guy and more of a let's do what's in the best interest of the clients. And in today's technology world, that means open APIs, application program interfaces, so you can get data in and out of the system. And one other, uh, I'm sure, a trend to happen in fact, two trends, I guess I'll name, is that firms will be charged for use of the APIs. In other words, the APIs will be monetized to get your data in and out. And the second thing is that we will see a lot more per engagement pricing. You know, in the old days, it used to be a flat rate for software, and then it became a per user. And now it's evolving down to a per engagement. So some of the initial uh, engagement pricing here in the U.S. market was $100 per work paper for a tax return. Well, fiscally and monetarily, that just doesn't make sense. Uh, you know, you can't increase your fees to the client on tax returns a couple hundred dollars if you've got $100 worth of cost. In it. That just doesn't make sense. But I think that trend is going to continue just like we expect uh, Microsoft pricing, for example. We think Microsoft's pricing over time will land at about $100 per user per month, particularly as they add the Copilot 365 features and so forth. Is it a wonderful value at $100? Yeah. But, you know, you begin to think about what we formerly paid for using things like Microsoft Office versus the now $100 a month structure. There's so much change going on. And I ask myself, why do these deals get done when there's clearly so much at stake here and so much that is not in the best interests of so many other stakeholders like the clients, for example? I have the insights on quite a number of the, the situations. Uh, you know, one in particular that I'm thinking about, the husband and wife started the operation. They did a beautiful job building it out but the children didn't want to run the operation and there were no managers in the operation that wanted to run the operation. Okay. That kind of makes sense. And it was highly valuable by the way. So it, it allowed the founders to do things that they'd always wanted to do. You know, in other cases, um, and again, I won't disclose who this is, but I had this conversation within the last three weeks, the founder built a beautiful product. And by the way, from full disclosure, I helped, design and help them with the product. It, it got wide adoption in the U.S. market and globally, and it was sold to a public company, and that public company was taken private, okay? And the original owner-founder said to me, he said, you know, I wish I wouldn't have exited because he said it was a lot of money, and everybody that was involved got, you know, became very whole, became very wealthy 
in the transaction. He said at the time it was a good deal. But the fact of the matter is, if I'd have kept running it, I could have continued to evolve the product into something much greater than it is today. And he said, you know, I went out and started another product, which he did, another company, and he's growing another one very successfully. But, you know, I tend to be, Rob, much more of a bigger pie type of guy. I think there's room for almost everybody in the market. I just want everybody to do the best possible job that they can. And what I'm now seeing is, you know, lip service to doing a good job, but that's mostly marketing and not fact. So, you know, in our part of the world, we call that sizzle, not steak. So you got a lot of sizzle being sold, but very little steak. And that's a real concern because it may not be as obvious to the buyers of the technology, but there's one more twist that's just chapping me at no end. And I don't get angry, by the way. So just so your listeners know, you know, in a year's time, if I get mad twice in the whole year, that would be extraordinary. But, uh, and, and unfortunately, I had to use up one of mine in January this year. You're one of the nice guys, usually, Randy. Well, you know, it's just most things don't bother me. I only worry about what I can control. But we know that um, salespeople are not acting forthright with the customers. So, you know, um, a joke that circulates in the U.S. market is, you know, what's the difference between a car sale, used car salesman and a software salesman? And the answer is the used car salesman knows they're lying. Ouch. Well, there was a time when the software salespeople actually didn't understand their products. But today, many of the software salespeople have been instructed to misrepresent the product intentionally by the management teams. You can see when you ask what's on my heart, these type of topics, you don't have to act this way. But we are seeing this motivation from lots of different fronts. And it is the one of the more difficult times to acquire strategic technology that i've seen in 40 plus years rob so you can see why this topic was kind of near and dear to my heart because i don't have a solution and normally i don't bring up a problem until i've figured out how to solve it but this is one where i don't exactly know how to solve the behavior buyers might solve it by not purchasing but you know, in this particular case, who are you going to call? You've got firms to run or businesses to run. And you have to have, in my mind, you have to have technology products to really do it the most efficiently. It must be so difficult for the CTOs, even managing partners, whoever makes that decision in accounting firms on which technology to purchase. I've heard stories about firms that only purchase with the client in mind. What's best for the client? I've heard firms purchase with what's best for our staff? What will they most easily adopt and integrate? I've heard what's the most cost-effective solution, which might not favor the client or the staff. I've heard what favors most the pension part and the equity part and the partner comp and everything else. I've heard that. I've also heard uh, sales being made, as you're alluding to, on the back of, well, what keeps our vendors happy so that they'll keep us happy? So that vendor agenda. And there's so many different stakeholders here. And and what joins with what we've already got? It's so complex. It's very complex. What do you do for the best? Well, and that's actually the problem because, you know, in my mind, historically, I've tried to get people to do what's best for the client, that works well for the team, that drops the maximum bottom line to the partners. That was my historic positioning. But with the shortage of labor, I've become a little more team-centric. What it works best for the team that allows us to de deliver the client services in an effective way. 
and is profitable for the firm. So notice that little bit of tone change there. But the problem here is with so many walled gardens, people that don't want to, uh, publishers that don't want to cooperate with other publishers, that's become a bit more of an issue. And frankly, a lot of the technology just is not performing as advertised. Now, for your listeners who would not know this, uh, I happen to be an old hardcore system programmer. So I can I can write, you know, assembler and machine language code to make things work. And I've got a long history of doing that. So when I'm working with a development team and they're doing dysfunctional things, I just kind of shake my head. Now, I understand uh, every generation of programmers, which about every 10 years, there's a new generation of programmers, have to learn and they make some of the same mistakes that the prior generation made. I have no problem with that. You know, people have to learn. I, I get that. But some of the code that I see, the strategies that I see, and we'll just use the popular term, producing a minimal viable product and pushing it into the market. Well, minimally viable means it doesn't have enough things to be complete. <laughs> All right. And there are products that are in the marketplace now that have been out there for 10 years that still don't have features that should have been in a product before it was released. So I... I kind of understand, you know, cash flow and trying to make everything work, but some of the software that's being promoted is just unbelievably poor and is not going to get fixed. And when I look at the development teams, I'm kind of shaking my head saying, you know, this doesn't really have a prayer of being fixed with this group of people. So how do we fix those type of problems? So again, you know me well enough, Rob, and your listeners may not know me well enough to know I'm a pretty upbeat guy. I'm usually very optimistic uh, on almost all fronts, but this thing has been burdening me because the more I watch it, even in my own consulting practice, it's like, what do I ask these uh, partners to do with their money? What do I ask this industry business to do in terms of accounting software ERP? Because I have a fair bit of expertise there. And we could go on a whole arc on accounting software with a similar type of discussion because the development team efforts... Um, in many cases are just uh, questionable in my mind. And there's a lot of management time that needs to be spent on that. And it's just not a priority. But to summarize what we've discussed so far, Randy, we're talking about two major drivers of private equity, venture capital money coming into accounting firms and altering the, uh, compromising the integrity of those firms, perhaps. And then we've got the vendor agenda and the whole technology piece coming in and those guys not playing right. That's all affecting how firms around the operational impact on those firms. There's a lot that this plays into. It really does. And just to give a perspective on that, the hunt is on for CPA firms by private equity in the U.S. market. My best bet is by a year from now uh, that there might be a hundred or more firms that have, have taken the deals, if you will. You know, I, I, talked to three of my client firms who had taken a deal and, you know, what was happening with them. And I understand what this strategy is, but I don't think they understand the handcuffs that they've put themselves in and, and the restrictions that they've put around themselves for their clients. So, you know, most uh, CPA accounting professionals around the world the ones that I like the best, and notice that's a, a personal 
like as opposed to maybe a factual statement. The ones I like the best are the ones that take care of their clients the best, take care of their team the best, and you know make a reasonable living at doing that. And uh, you know if you're if you're not doing the best you can every day for your clients, you know that's that's one of those head bobbers for me. It's like uh, it, for me, it's like physicians, very talented people who don't do the very best they can to take care of their patients. That's just like, really? Why would you be in medicine if you aren't really focused on taking care of patients? It's a sad situation, isn't it? If you compare it to the medical profession and their oath, obviously, is first do no harm and try and aid health and all of that stuff. But when you come to the trusted advisor and CPA role, bookkeeping role, let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say, they don't really come in to make a book. They come in to make a difference. They want to serve their clients. They want to do well. They realize the responsibility they have and the power they have to make an impact in people's lives and businesses. So if they have technology companies coming in and private equity money coming in that is forcing them to compromise on their original reasons for getting into this game and they're being sold the dream of the money, the client comes way down the list. So I'd like to finish, if we could, by asking you to come up with two lists. And these are lists of questions. And the first list would be decision makers in accounting firms when faced with a technology decision, what questions should they be asking themselves to help them make the right decision? So we'll have that list. And then another list for the same kind of people, the same leaders, decision makers, when faced with a private equity decision, an approach with money to buy that business and change the structure of the ownership, whatever that means, what questions should they be asking themselves to ensure they make the right decision? So I've given you a little bit of forethought there, but I am putting you on the spot but just come up with a handful of questions first for that technology thing. You're faced with a major purchasing decision on bringing some new or complementary technology into a firm. What kind of things should you be asking yourself? Yeah, understood. And uh, I'll, I'll address those. In fact, I think I may do a little bit of a writing task post our uh, discussion today. <laughs> We've given you an idea, have we? It's such an interesting couple of questions. I want to even flush them out further than my verbal response. But as I'm Thinking about the market, just one final thought. In the U.S. market, there's approximately 45,500 CPA firms, and I could do the Canadian stats as well. So the majority of the firms are still going to be independently owned, I believe. But the environment is going to change because you're going to have competitive pressures from firms that don't act in the same way. Now, that could be good. It could be bad. We'll just have to see what happens over time on that. But now for the technology decision, let's kind of go that way. Uh, there are a variety of technology filtering questions that I apply, Rob. First, uh, I, I have some very simple high-level ones. Uh, how long have you been in business? And what's your plan for five or 10 years from now? Because whenever I make a purchase for technology, I want to use it for at least 10 years. By the way, I only try to use technology for about 10 years without a major reevaluation because the technology changes so much. You have to see if the vendor is kept up. Microsoft almost didn't do that with Office, for example, but they then realized we're falling behind. So what, what's your plan for five or 10 years from now? And that often catches suppliers off guard because so many of these are, you know, quarterly measures or annual measures or five-year cycles if they're private equity. But what's your plan for five to 10 years? Number one. Number two, do you have um, uh, uh, an integration methodology 
with other products? And what is that? And the correct answer today should be an open API, but many products don't have anything at all. And although I like the digital plumbing tools like Zapier and Boomi and uh, CData and so forth, and there's about 30 of those out there, uh -oh. having an intermediate connection tool like Zapier isn't the real solution. A direct connection is way better. So that's what I'm trying to get to there. Uh, number three, I usually ask about the support teams. And then number four, I usually ask about the implementation teams. Because one of the toughest things in most firms is the change management. It's a little easier in my mind with smaller firms than it is with medium or large firms. But the change management is a huge deal uh, to pull, pull people along. Then normally I'll ask questions like, when was the last time you rewrote this platform? Because some of the cases we're dealing with code that was written in the 90s. And, and by the way, a lot of popular products were written over 20 years ago at this point. Remember my 10-year rotation on technology? Uh, you know, a lot of them are still using stuff that I just wouldn't use anymore. But what's happening is the vendors are often milking the proverbial cow and they're not feeding the cow. And that's the concern I've got. So when was the last time you rewrote that? Now, from there, uh, usually I go to the pricing, positioning, and so forth. But that's four or five things for your listeners to think about on the technology purchase side. Now, there's, there's some strategic things, by the way, because remember, I like to have a business strategy and tactic and then align my technology strategy and tactics with those. But that's a, that's a conversation for another day. It's a good list of starters, Randy, on tech purchases for sure. Thank you, sir. So notice then on the private equity side, uh, I think there's a few questions. And again, the managing partners and partners in firms that I've dealt with on this, uh, I think the core questions involve uh, what type of control do you expect to have over a five or 10 year period? Again, notice the longer view because almost always the partners who have been used to being in charge will no longer be in charge. In some models, they get a little local operational control, but uh, you know that's not going to be exactly the same way. And number two, uh, how comfortable are you with having to report to someone else? Okay, because for many accounting professionals, they've been in charge of their own destiny and all of a sudden they're not going to be. It's, it's a different deal to be responsible to your partners in an organization as opposed to being responsible to somebody from the outside or being responsible to the public markets, all of which are, are quite different. So that's number two. Number three, how does this impact your team? Okay, you've probably spent a lot of effort building your team out. What's the benefits to them along the way? Uh, I probably should have had this question earlier. What do you perceive the impact to be to the clients? Yes. Okay. Because unfortunately, too many people listen to that radio station, WIIFM, what's in it for me? <laughs> Another one. And as it turns out, you know, in these transactions, so much of the time, it's a confidential discussion with the partners and the partners get kind of caught up in the excitement of a big payday and no longer being responsible. Uh, they 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 kind of get wrapped up in the deal before they really thought it through. Then uh, the next one is what is going to be the impact in the operations of the firm for the long haul? What's the legacy? Because in many cases, 
firms have been built that are going on for a good number of years. You know, the original uh, business I helped start back in 1983 is still operational, even though I fully exited it. Okay. My ne network management group uh, business. And that was a good uh, exit in my mind. And all of those people are well taken care of. And we still pay intentionally about 20% above market. And oddly enough, we don't seem to have a lot of recruitment problems, right? But, but, you know, that's an operational decision that we made on how we run the business. And so an additional question might be, how much input will you have on running the, the firm? And, and in many cases, people don't care because they just want out of the operations. So there's four or five questions that you can ask. Now, there's still a lot of merger acquisition, the uh, considerations, because the technologies that are the platform of the acquiring firm are almost always certainly going to be forced on your firm. That could be a, a big win. That could be a big loss. And I've seen it go both ways. So many insights there, Andy, and a, a checklist for starters on good questions to ask, but we appreciate there's so much more under the hood there, if you like, that firms and decision makers need to be considering. But that's given us some tremendous insights into the key decisions that need to be made in accounting firms with a whole load of private equity money and the technology and vendor agenda that's influencing firms right now. Thank you so much once more for your time and your insights today. Great as always. Uh, such a pleasure to talk with you about this topic and I hope your listeners got an idea or two they can use. All the best to you all. You're listening to the Accounting Influencers Podcast. Sponsored by Advanced Track, helping you as an accountant confidently choose between outsourcing and offshoring. Oh,